Welcome to the Library Love Fest podcast. I'm Virginia Stanley. I'm Chris Connolly. And I'm Lainey Mays. We are the library marketing team at HarperCollins Publishers. Above all, we love bringing librarians and great books together. Join us every week as we present buzzworthy books through author interviews, conversations with editors, and expert opinions from librarians like you. Enjoy the show. Book Buzz, HarperCollins Book Buzz. Check it out. Book Buzz, HarperCollins Book Buzz. Brought to you by Library Love Fest. Hello, everyone. This is Chris Connolly with the HarperCollins Library Marketing Team. Today, I am lucky enough to be joined by David Heska Wombly Wyden whose debut adult novel, Winter Counts, goes on sale August 25th. Uh, This is a huge book for us. We've been talking about it for a while. It's getting a ton of praise. It's a groundbreaking debut thriller set on a Native American reservation. And I'm just going to read some quick praise before we let David speak. Um, C.J. Box, who is the best-selling author of Long Range, said, I've been waiting most of my life for this book without realizing it. Winter Counts is a knowing, authentic, closely observed novel about modern-day Lakotas that rings absolutely true warts and all. The sense of place is breathtaking and raw. It's a hell of a debut. We have quotes from Steph Chaw, who wrote Your House Will Pay, James McLaughlin, who wrote Bearskin, one of our titles, a great book and I think a great comparison title for this as far as writing style and strength of prose, and then Benjamin Percy, who we all love, who wrote Suicide Woods and Red Moon, who says, the full throttle can't put it down this of this novel as a fact. Winter Counts is a hell of a gripping debut, perfectly plotted, and David Heska Wombly Wyden is a major new voice in crime fiction, indigenous fiction, and American literature. Uh, so David, after that long-awaited intro, <laughs> thank you so much for joining me today. Well, it's my pleasure. I'm, I'm honored and humbled and a little bit embarrassed by all that praise, but it's just, it's a great place to be, and I'm really thrilled to talk with you today. Well, the excitement is palpable with this, and I think it is a story that hasn't been told by a voice that hasn't been heard nearly enough um, in in literature. So uh, just to start with, I gave a brief overview, but could you give listeners a bit more of an intro and overview of what Winter Counts is about? Winter Counts is one of the first Native American thrillers, but I hope it's more than a Native American thriller. I, I hope, in addition to being a crime novel, that it's also a book about identity, it's a book about place. It's a book about a lot of issues. So I, I hope that readers will really enjoy the plot, but I hope they learn something as well. But what is the book about? The book is a story of Virgil Wounded Horse, who is a Native American vigilante for hire. And so what that means is that people hire him when they cannot get justice on the reservation. So my people are the Sichangu Lakota people in South Dakota. and. There is a law that, has, that was passed in 1885 called the Major Crimes Act, which means that um, certain felonies cannot be prosecuted by natives. They must be prosecuted by the uh, federal government. But they are declining to prosecute about half of these felonies, which means that criminals are free to reoffend. So if somebody rapes your sister or hurts your mom or your son or your daughter and you can't get justice, you hire Virgil and he will enact his own brand of justice. And that is the setup for the novel. 
And this Major Crimes Act, I should give maybe listeners uh, some background for you, because you've worked extensively in both academia and in uh, general writing about this. Um, you're an enrolled citizen of the Sikongu Lakota Nation. You received an MFA from the Institute of American Indian Arts. If that weren't enough, you're a McDowell Colony Fellow, a Tin House Scholar, and you received the Pan America's Writing for Justice Fellowship. So you've studied this extensively. Could you talk about that a little? I have. I'm also an attorney. I'm a, a licensed attorney in the state of Colorado, and I'm a professor of Native American Studies, and I'm writing a textbook on uh, Native American Studies and law. And so all of these issues mean a lot to me, but you can lecture on something very dryly and, and in a boring way, but I think the way to bring it alive is, is through fiction, and I've been a huge fiction buff my entire life, and indeed studied fiction at the Institute of American Indian Arts uh, with Tommy Orange and Ramona Ossibel and so many of my wonderful teachers and mentors, and so this book is my attempt to bring these issues to life. And it's a really fascinating, I mean, it's a fascinating approach because it, it, it has, you know, the plot points of a really breakneck thriller, and, and, and it's just so tightly written, and, and not only are there these great insights from Virgil, who's most of the story is told through his eyes, um, I just think it, it was a really fascinating look at something, a story we haven't had before. So I'm curious, and I think you're, people, you know, young children, young readers now, who maybe are part of a Native American uh, reservation or grew up um, with that background, what did you read growing up? Because I feel like there's probably a void for you, whether it's young people, young readers, or just new readers looking for genre fiction. Like, what did you read? And I, I read everything growing up. I was your typical author in that I read voraciously and constantly. I would say that I was really obsessed with the author Larry McMurtry, and I've read Lonesome Dove maybe 20 or 30 times. Um, you know, I read as many indigenous authors as I could, but there just there wasn't the availability back when I was a kid. And so I, I read everything. Larry McMurtry. I read genre, but I read literary fiction. I loved John Cheever. Uh, I loved it all. But I come back to the genre writers who can uh, transcend, I think, genre and, and, and bring something more to the table. And I think Larry McMurtry and Lonesome Dove is, is a great example of that. Because it's a Western, but it's so much more than a Western. And so I'm trying to bring the same sort of, I suppose, approach to Winter Counts. And you have a great character that you've created here with Virgil Wounded Horse, who is the enforcer on the Rosebud Reservation. And he's a really observant, damaged character, but he has these constant insights, both looking at the situation on the Rosebud Reservation, but also the outside world, because this does take place both in South Dakota and Denver. So you get a lot of different demographics that make appearances in this book. But I think one thing that kind of is woven throughout is the idea of kind of being in the margins in that uh, Virgil is an Ayeska, his nephew Nathan grapples with this as well, um, and to a different degree and in a different circumstance, his ex-girlfriend Marie, uh, who is also kind of an outsider in this, in the reservation. Could you talk about those characters and, and how that marginalized kind of not fitting in works in the story. I'd love to. I'd love to. So in our language, the Lakota language, being an Ayeska, it means translator, and it originally meant someone who, uh, it actually means speaks white. <laughs> and so it's somebody that can speak Indian and and native, uh, and white, uh, English. Um, but it, it, uh, it has become over time something of a slur. 
And so to call somebody an Ayeska is, is a good way to get into a fight. And so Virgil Wounded Horse is an Ayeska. He's part white and part native. And he's been kind of bullied his entire life. And, but, and I, you know, I think we can all relate to this to some degree. I mean, very few of us feel that we completely fit in. And so that's why I hope that Virgil's identity issues, the book, the theme of the book is identity. What does it mean to be Indian? What does it mean to be a half-breed, as, as he is sometimes taunted? And so I hope that these issues resonate beyond people you know, that are native to, to all of us, really. So that's, that's again, one of the, the themes that I think persists throughout the book. Excellent. Um, and, you know, and you mentioned this with, uh, with you know, the need for enforcers, and, and this is actually based on real life, that there are enforcers. What tipped you off to that storyline? You know, I, I'd been hearing about these enforcers for years. They're kind of talked about in hushed tones. It's not really well acknowledged. And so about 10 years ago, I started doing some research, and I started talking to people on my reservation, and I started hearing about how they operate. And so I, of course, fictionalized it. So Virgil's price is he charges $100 for each bone he breaks and $100 for each tooth he knocks out. Um, that, that, you know, I kind of added that, but they're real people. And so they exist on the Pine Ridge Reservation and the Rosebud Reservation. I don't think anybody's done a full-on study of this profession, but it, they do exist in reservations across the land. And nobody, I think, has really examined this. And an issue that's coming in kind of really wrecking communities throughout the country is that there, a part of the story here is that heroin's making its way onto the reservation, amongst other things. Could you talk about that issue? That, that's yet another theme throughout the book, anti-drug. Meth is probably a bigger problem on the Rosebud Reservation right now, but heroin is making inroads. And I am just so horrified by what is happening to young people on the Rosebud Reservation. If you drive around our reservation, you will sometimes see houses boarded up, and that's because they were used as uh, meth labs, cooking houses, and they can't be inhabited. And for every one of those houses I see, I think about the lives that were destroyed. And so there is a very potent anti-drug message in this book that I hope resonates as well. Excellent. And related to that, Virgil, again, is very observant, whether it's problems or things happening within the community or outside of it. Um, but there's a section where he's talking about news, like, you know, news organizations, and they, they love to swoop in in certain areas where the problems are most visible um, and palpable. But this novel also really brings to life some of the community and the beauty of, the, of these cultures. Could you talk about kind of that section and, and what he's getting at? I'd love to. So we call it poverty porn. Yes. So so often um, news organizations, national and local, they will come to the worst and most despondent areas of usually the Pine Ridge Reservation, sometimes Rosebud, because they want to portray, oh, the poor Indians. See, they're drunks, they're sad, they're poor. And look, I'm not saying there aren't alcoholics on the reservation. I'm not saying there aren't poor people, because of course there are, as there are throughout American society. But too rarely are the triumphs and the beauty, beauties of the reservation celebrated and brought to life. And so I made a real attempt to show that we think reservations are not just these pits of trauma and poverty, but they're the places where our ancestors are buried. They're, they're home to us, and they're places of beauty and happiness and hope. 
Of course, there are problems on there, but we need to, I think, acknowledge the, the good parts as well as the, the trauma and the poverty. So I'm so glad you picked up on that because that was a very conscious effort on my part to celebrate the good parts of the reservations. Yeah, and, and even the problems that you say, you, you admit, I mean, there are problems in any community, but particularly when a community has been ravaged, not only by the drugs, but before that, the legislation that impacted them. And, and I think you really do bring that to light. Um, and something that surprised me in this book, and part, it started tongue in cheek, and at least I read it as far as food justice. And um, Virgil's in, in Denver, his first trip to Denver, and he's noticing like what everyone's eating and, and how they're, they're acting. But then you have a character come in who's trying to kind of impart new nutrition. I feel like food justice is an issue that's growing and maybe not talked about enough. Could you kind of discuss what what brought you towards bringing that into the story? Yeah, it's a really complicated issue, you know, food justice and and uh, on the reservation because we don't have great grocery stores. On my reservation, there are two, and they don't often have top quality food. And so a lot of natives grew up loving fry bread, which I, I love as well, but is a food that is not truly indigenous. It was invented by our grandmothers who were given some, some flour and some oil, and they had to make a meal out of that. Well, it's actually very unhealthy, and the uh, lifespan on my reservation is 47 for a man, 47 years old. That's 30 years younger than outside of the reservation. And when I read my hometown newspaper, I see people dying at age 30, 35, 32. And, and it horrifies me and it saddens me. And part of this is a lack of decent medical care, which I also touch upon in the book, but also the fact that we don't have really decent food. Now, on the other hand, though, I, I tried to bring sort of a comic edge to it because we have a gentleman come in, Chef Lack, who comes in, and he wants everybody to start eating wild herbs and stuff. And that's not really feasible for a family on the reservation to go out and pick wild herbs and get rid of all their flour and sugar and wheat. So I tried to look at it from both sides. So, you know, hopefully dramatically as well as, you know, in a sort of a comical sense as well. Yeah, it was excellent. Um... And let's see, I guess, if, once, what do you want people to feel, or what do, you, what do you want people to take away when they finish this book? Obviously, it's a propulsive thriller, but what else is there that you would like them to take away? Well, I hope that, that, that you know, three things people will take away from Winter Counts. First of all, I hope it's a page-turner. I hope that people just enjoy it. They're, they're captivated for a few nights, and, and they just can't wait to turn the next page. Every writer wants that. I hope also that they enjoy the characters, okay? I hope that they, they see themselves in some of the characters. I'm, I'm a dad, I've got two young sons, and so I brought in a lot of my 15-year-old son into the character of Nathan. In um, the sequel to this book, there will be a sequel, I'm gonna bring in more of what happened. My 11-year-old son, Sasha, this is a true story, this is not in the book, he was uh, uh, present at a school shooting that happened in Colorado about 10 months ago, the STEM School Highlands Ranch. My son, two gunmen burst into my son's school. He was 11 years old at the time. He had to hide in a closet and listen to the gunmen shoot 12 people uh, just 100 feet away from him. He hid in a closet with his teacher who held a tennis racket for protection. This is a, this is a real true story, and that shook me to my core as a, as a parent. And I can assure you 
that something like that is going to make it into my next book as well. So I want readers to get into the characters and hopefully identify with the characters. But then the final thing that I would like people to take away from Winter Counts is an awareness of some of these issues. I think that most people don't know about the Major Crimes Act. They don't know about our broken criminal justice system, system on reservations. They're not aware of the food injustice that we have. And I think they may just not have a sense of how life proceeds on the reservation. So I hope there's an educational function to the book as well, but in an enjoyable way, not in a dry textbook way. Excellent. Well, is there anything else you want to say before we let you go, David? I just want to say thank you to HarperCollins and Echo and the team. Everybody has been so wonderful. And I want to thank any readers out there. Thank you for reading my words. And I, I truly am humbled by the attention you've given to this book. Thank you, David. Uh, so Winter Counts goes on sale August 25th uh, from Echo, HarperCollins. Uh, thank you for listening. Again, thank you so much for joining me today, David. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Library Love Fest podcast. For more information on this week's episode, go to librarylovefest.com. Enjoying the show? We would love to hear what you think. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Library Love Fest and on Instagram at Harper Library. Be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share the show with a friend. Lastly, if you enjoy our show, we bet you'll enjoy all of the other podcasts from HarperCollins Publishers. Find a list of shows at harpercollins.com forward slash podcast. See you next week. Thank you.